I'm Erin Holt, and this is the Functional Nutrition Podcast, where we lean into intuitive functional medicine. We look at how diet, our environment, our emotions, and our beliefs all affect our physical health. This podcast is your full-bodied, well-rounded resource. I've got over a decade of clinical experience, and because of that, I've got a major bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model. They're both failing so many of us. But functional medicine isn't the panacea that it's made out to be either. We've got some work to do, and that's why creating a new model is my life's work. I believe in the ripple effect, so I founded the Functional Nutrition Academy, a school and mentorship for practitioners who want to do the same. This show is for you if you're looking for new ways of thinking about your health and you're ready to be an active participant in your own healing. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. I would love for you to follow the show, rate, review, and share because you never know whose life you might change. And of course, keep coming back for more. Hello, my friends. Today, we're going to talk all things fertility with the queen herself, Lisa Hendrickson Jack. She's been on the show before. Um, Gosh, it was over five years ago that I first talked to her, which is totally insane. And then we re-released her original episode um, for episode 213, Understand Your Cycle, Take Back Your Power. So if you want to do a little refresher after this one, um, you can go listen Go listen to that. There's not a tremendous amount of overlap between the two episodes. Lisa is so incredible. We had a lot of tech issues. Suffice it to say, we had a lot of tech issues and she was so kind, courteous, grace, gave us so much grace. I just, I just have to shout her out. She's, she's truly, truly incredible. Uh, so Lisa is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to start or chart their menstrual cycles for natural birth control, conception, and monitoring overall health. She's the author of three best-selling books, The Fifth Vital Sign. Chances are, if you have listened to the show or followed me in any capacity, you probably already own that book. If not, you should. Uh, the Fertility Awareness Mastery Charting Workbook, workbook, and her most recent book, Real Food for Fertility, which she co-authored with Lily Nichols RDN. Lisa works tirelessly to debunk the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children by recognizing the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. So we'll talk about that on the show. She draws heavily from the current scientific lit, and she presents evidence-based approaches to help women connect to their fifth vital sign. So this this show is a good one. You're going to want to probably take some notes uh, for you, perhaps for your partner. Um, like I said, we had some tech issues, so I'm going to pick up a little bit midstream in the conversation. I had asked her um, what it's like to be Lisa lately. I said, hey, welcome back to the show. It's been five years. Like, how you living? How you been doing? And so this will pick up right where she starts to answer that question. I know you will enjoy it. She's great. It's a great episode. Thanks for having me. Well, that's an interesting question because it's a very busy season of my life. A lot of things have happened in the last couple of months and some good, some not so good, but um, the book has taken a, the better part of uh, the last three years. So Lily and I have been really diligently working on that. And during that time, um, we both actually also run um, programs for practitioners. So I have my fertility awareness mastery mentorship program I also have an 18-month-old uh, baby. Uh, <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. So it's been um, a busy season, but I would say a, a good one. I think that it's just uh, a, a season of life. And, you know, the reason that I take on all these things is because it really comes down to wanting to make life better for women. It's still the goal. And w- when I do my client work, whether it's in my practitioner program or my client programs, almost on a daily basis, I'm still hearing a lot of the same things, you know, women having issues with their cycles or with fertility or with hormones, and they go to their care providers, and they're not being provided with answers. And so that's really still the root of why I'm so busy. (laughs) Because it's all about trying to, to, you know, make an impact and improve this. I completely understand and hear what you're saying. I think that and sometimes I'm like, really, like, we're still struggling with the same thing, you know, like all these years later. But I also 
understand that people kind of find their health journeys at different moments in time based on what's going on with them in their life and what they're working on. Um, do you feel like that that's kind of your North Star? I feel like for ambitious women who do a lot, we kind of need that like guiding force to continuously remember like, oh, this is why I'm working so hard. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Do you feel like that that's yours? Yeah. I mean, I, it's a combination too, because I, I remember when I had my eldest son and I was, I was, you know, not doing this full time at that time. And I remember thinking that, you know, I'm spending all this time working. Uh, it's, and now that I have him, it's time away from my child. So I remember feeling this drive to do something meaningful so that if I'm spending time away from my children, uh, making a living that I actually, it's something that I, that I really feel passionate about and really good about, you know, if that, if that makes sense. So it's, it's certainly a combination with that personal aspect of it, but also um, this piece of it, because I, I sometimes joke that if I didn't do this work and I didn't have my podcast, I'd be standing on a street corner somewhere with a sign, just like screaming at the top of my lungs because of how frustrating it is. Uh, because when you hear similar stories over and over and over, it's just like, what do you do? So this is my contribution to like, this is, you know, to try to help the situation. Because at the end of the day, you know, I've, I discovered fertility awareness charting uh, in my late teens. And so for me personally, this has been something I've been able to use for over 20 years. And I've been teaching women for almost as long. And so this is something that I've been able to take for granted, and I've been able to benefit from. And even though a lot has changed in 20 years, 20 plus years, you know, it's a lot more common now, so many women know about it. It's, it's, it, you know, this information is getting out there your average woman still doesn't really understand how her cycle works, let alone her fertility. And that's a huge piece of um, Lily and I writing this book together because we want to provide that information and knowledge that women need in order to make informed decisions about their fertility and about their health and their reproduction and building their families. I mean, that's a perfect segue into what we're going to talk about. And I know that this is a bit of a review. I'm going to link to the original episode that we recorded because um, there was so much good stuff there. And that was really um, based on your first book, The Fifth Vital Sign, which I recommend to everybody, practitioner and non-practitioner alike. But So this is definitely going to be a review question, but I think it's a good place to get started. Can you just explain to us what a vital sign is and why we should consider the menstrual cycle a vital sign? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a vital sign, put simply, is just a, a way that the body, it's a measure, um, a bodily response that we can measure. And the most common vital signs include your heart rate, your temperature, your um, respiratory rate. So if you think about, you know, blood pressure, I'll throw that one in there too. If you think about any of these common vital signs, if you go to your doctor and they're measured, not only does it give your doctor general information. So if the blood pressure is too high, it tells him that something's wrong or her. Um, it also provides a bit of a roadmap because we know that there's a handful of things that are going to contribute to high blood pressure or you know high temperatures or, or whatever the case is. And so when we look at the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, what that means is we're acknowledging that there is this normal range and we can break the menstrual cycle down into a variety of, of different factors. So we can look at um, the period itself, you know, the length, the quality of menstruation, those types of things. We can look at the overall cycle length, we can look at how long it takes you to ovulate, what happens in that pre-ovulatory phase if you have normal cervical mucus patterns, and we can look at the length and quality of your luteal phase, the second half of your cycle. So we can actually break it down into a number of different factors. And when we understand that there's a normal range for those things, then when your cycle is outside of that or an aspect of your cycle is outside of that, not only is it general information that something's wrong, but it can provide sometimes a, a more specific roadmap. And it can be something as simple as you have, you know, cervical mucus discharge every single day. And that could be a sign of a potential infection to something more serious, where if you are not having a period at all for six months, that could be a sign of, you know, hypothalamic amenorrhea, exercise induced, stress induced, you know, under eating scenario that we need to address. Now, what if, so if we're talking about fertility, this is kind of like a high level question. Um, what are the main things that's going to impact a woman's fertility? 
um, if you had to kind of distill it down into main pillars. So this is, I know, still kind of like an introductory part of the conversation, but for folks who are like, wait, wait, what? (laughs) Like this is all news to me. Um, What would you, if we could, if you could summarize, what are like the the main categories of things that are really going to impact a woman's fertility or infertility? That's a great question. And I think that to, to kind of start to answer that question, you want to think about your fertility as a sign of overall health. We want to think about if you have a healthy body, if you have a optimal hormone balance, healthy menstrual cycle, then fertility is a byproduct of that. So if we think about fertility as a natural kind of sign of just overall health, then it, it really starts with maintaining health. And so, you know, in Real Food for Fertility and the work that we're doing, we're arguing that your diet is a huge piece of this. So the foundational piece of it. And so we're breaking it down into um, from from the most basic level, making sure that we have sufficient macronutrients on board in a good balance, maintaining healthy blood sugar balance. So having that as a baseline. Um, to increasing specific micronutrient ratios. So making sure that not only do we have enough of like the protein, the fat, the carbs, but we're also looking at our micronutrient um, intake and optimizing that. And so we, we really get into the weeds about how not only does it matter that we have enough protein and sufficient fat as a building block for our hormones, if we don't get enough of those, I mean, we need all three, but I think for women, we often undereat those, <laughs> specifically protein, and a lot of women shy away from fats. And so interestingly, when we add in the menstrual cycle component to it, we can actually see in real time if what you're doing is working. Because if you are getting sufficient you know, nutrition, whether you know the combination of macros and micros, um, then you would expect your menstrual cycle to be in better balance. So I think that's the interesting piece of it where we can actually look at how we're doing when we look at the menstrual cycle as a vital sign and track it. And so in addition then to that, you know, general overall picture, we can get into more of the specifics, but this is a higher level question. Um, We also then want to look at, you know, hormone balance. We want to look at lifestyle factors. We go into, you know, you can look at your toxin exposure. You can look at um, the different things that you're exposing your body to. So we can kind of look at even in terms of your exercise and whether you're eating sufficient calories to to sustain offset your activity level. Um, but I feel like just for that higher level overview, we really want to look at that piece of it first um, and then go from there. That makes a lot of sense. And I mean, definitely we're encouraging everybody to go out and buy the book, Real Food for Fertility. For, sorry, <laughs> Real Food for Fertility. Like There's a lot F's. of Fs there. I know. Um, it's a fantastic book, and it's going to get into the nitty gritty of all the all of the nutrition. I mean, that's what what you guys are really doing so 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 well with that book. Huge need for it. Um, you said it took you three years. I always wonder how long it takes for these books to really like come to life. Three years is that what you said? Yeah, I mean, it's um, because we're, Lily and I are both working on it. Um, it's kind of like two books in one book. You know, it's it's. I don't want to, like, I, I hesitate to say, but it's 500 pages, you know, it's, um, and the, the interesting thing about it, though, is that it's not extraneous detail. I mean, Lily's an expert in her field regarding the nutrition, and she really goes into a lot of depth. And we, we strive to create a resource that's not just like, you know, eat this thing because we told you so, you know, we strive to create a resource that's really providing the science behind the recommendations so that, you're empowered not only to know what to do, but to know why it's important. Um, and then when you add in the menstrual cycle piece of it, so there's kind of, you know, there's there's nothing like it because it's adding this foundational piece. But then there's this whole other part of the conversation when it comes to understanding your menstrual cycle, knowing how to use fertility awareness techniques for optimal timing, paying attention to the male factor. So a huge part of this conversation as well is the the man's contribution. So from some of our early reviewers, some of the comments that we've received is like, wow, I didn't expect you guys to talk about men so much. (laughs) Um, But what's interesting about it, like, I always share this joke because I think it gets the point across, but it's like, you know, I carried my babies for nine months and like they all came out looking just like their dad. (laughs) So fortunately he's handsome. But the point though, is that he's 50% of the genetic material. And when we're looking at fertility challenges, 20 to 30% of the time, the man is the sole reason for infertility, you know, issues. 
and up to you know fifty not up to but fifty percent of the time he's a contributing factor. So um, we want to look at optimizing for both parties. Um, of course, the book there's a lot to talk about about women, but we have a really significant um, sperm chapter. Uh, funny story: there was a time when I wanted to write a whole sperm book, <laughs> and so I went a little wild on the sperm chapter. Um, but the reason for it is because this is a huge piece that's overlooked as well. Um, when you get into the weeds with menstrual cycle charting, you really can identify when in your cycle you can conceive. And like, this is one of the big myths, you know, that I'm still busting uh, how many years later, but we're not fertile every day. And a lot of women find that out at some point in their fertility journey, you know, when they, they have to, they, you know, if they're trying to conceive and it's not happening right away and they're trying to figure things out, they stumble on this information that you actually are not fertile all the time and you want to time sex in relation to your ovulation to some degree. And so from that standpoint, when I first started charting my own cycles, I was in my late teens, early 20s, and I was not trying to have a baby. And so I would avoid <laughs> that, that window like a plague. And so then when I started to work with clients who were trying to conceive, and I started to see that they were having sex at the right time, cycle after cycle, and nothing was happening, at some point you have to wonder, well, what's going on? Like, what's his sperm status like? And so that's a whole conversation if you want to get into it. But it's it's a really important piece of this conversation because, as you know, most of us as women, because we have the physical evidence of pregnancy, we really take it on as if when we're having fertility challenges that it's completely our fault. And often we're told as well that our partners are completely fine, even if they're not. So it's a whole conversation. I definitely have in my notes to get into the male counterpart because it's so under discussed. And, you know, as women, we are, we have a tendency to take a lot of things on. And, um, and so it's, it, to your point, it's a very, very under discussed part of it, but it is, you know, it takes two to tango. It's a part of the puzzle. All right, my athletes and my fitness freaks, are you getting enough electrolytes? You kind of need them. They're kind of a big deal. You lose a lot through sweat, but just don't be replacing them with any of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no fillers, no yuck. You need Element. It's not only delicious and wicked convenient, mixes in water super easily, but it also contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio, 1,000 milligrams sodium, 200 milligrams potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. You can get a free sample pack that's eight single serve packets for free with any element order when you go to drinkelement.com forward slash funk. The deal's only available through my unique link to thank you for listening to the show. D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash F-U-N-K. You can try it risk-free. Are you trying to get healthier? Maybe you want to eat better or move your body more, but you struggle with willpower, productivity, or focus. If so, I've got you. My brand new sponsor, Neurohacker, combines 28 of their most research-backed nootropic ingredients in their ultimate brain fuel formula called Qualia Mind. It's been changing people's lives for years now. It's been changing mine for a few months, which is why I called them up and say, hey, do you want to sponsor the show? I love what your product is doing for my brain. Qualia Mind has really helped my focus, my mood, my willpower, my drive. I love it. All the ingredients really work in synergy with one another to support optimal brain function pathways, and you will feel it. If you don't, you can get your money back. Try it for 100 days, and if it doesn't work, if you're not totally stoked, get your money back. See what it can do for your mind. Go to neurohacker.com forward slash funk to save $100 off and 15% off of your first purchase when you use code funk. That's neurohacker.com forward slash F-U-N-K to try Qualia Mind with the code funk. You had said something earlier that I want to, I would love to talk a little bit more about. I I have been, there's a big uptick in external data points and ways to track things, whether it's HRV or it's CGMs, or there's all these gadgets and there's gizmos and everybody's collecting data points, external data points about our bodies. And, and still we're struggling to understand like, what's right for us. Like people, what's the right diet? What's the right exact percentage of macros? And people are still like 
searching for this information. And one of the things that I attempt to do with my work is bring people back to their internal data points as well. And this can be a little bit tricky to for folks to wrap their heads around because sometimes it's like, well, you know, sometimes it's intuition. What is your intuition? What is your inner knowing leading you to? But sometimes I'm talking about things like this. What is your cycle doing? So when you attempt this new diet or this new exercise or these new like food changes, what it, what happens with your sleep? What happens with your energy? What happens with your mood? What happens with your cycle? These are all I would consider internal data points that we can use to guide us toward the path that is correct for us because the path that's correct for us might not be the the same path for Sally or for Jane. And so I I just want to take a moment to kind of highlight that since we've been talking about that a lot on the podcast, this is one one of the things that we can use. But with that said... There's also a lot of different trackers that people can use for their cycle. And I would love to hear hear your perspective on some of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such a great question. You know, I am a little bit biased on that because I've been in this field for so long. So I think that I'm not against tech. I think it's great. I think that it, it invites a lot of people into the conversation. I think that for a lot of uh, women these days, it really is the thing that's introducing them to this whole concept that their cycle is important for health and that it's connected to their fertility and those kinds of things. So I think there's a lot of benefit for it. Um, Now, I think it depends on what you're using it for and how you're using it. So when it comes to fertility specifically, if someone is trying to conceive, um, I think that it's not the greatest idea to depend entirely on tech to say, tell you, when you're in your fertile window. Not because it can't be beneficial to use tech, but I think in a perfect world, my perfect world, you would also have that knowledge. So you'd have the opportunity to learn about the the full conversation about how your body works because you can actually track your fertile signs. So the main fertile signs that we tend to talk about in my world are the cervical fluid. So this is the cervical fluid you produce as you approach ovulation. It can look like the creamy hand lotion or the clear, stretchy, like raw egg white type. And we produce that as we approach ovulation. It has all these interesting properties. It keeps sperm alive for up to five days. It's the perfect pH. It's like a home away from home for them. And then it also serves as a a way for us to time because when you're paying attention to your cycle, Um, assuming you're not, you know, on hormones and you're ovulating normally, then when you are approaching ovulation, you start to see this change in your cervical fluid, that is a sign that this is the fertile time. And so this is something that all women can learn. Uh, And there's interesting research studies that show there was one research study that I looked at, and they taught women to score their cervical fluid on a scale of one to four. And so the highest score you would get if the mucus was the clearest, stretchiest type and just based on that score alone, these women outperformed the you know ovulation strips just based Wild. on timing their sex, uh, timing their intercourse based on you know the highest score of mucus. So, so you know the point that I'm making is that I think that it's important to have that knowledge, and that's one of the things I love in this world, right? For all women to understand this because it's kind of basic. <laughs> we we spend a lot of time in biology class learning about like our ears and stuff, and. As, as interesting and important as that is, I mean, this is how we build our families. So I feel like this is even more important. And then when we can marry that knowledge and understanding with the tech, then I think we have a really great opportunity. Um, let me give you an example, because I think it might not, like maybe this will help to kind of solidify why I feel this way. So, you know, one of the most common ways to track, you know, especially related to fertility would be like an ovulation strip. And I talk about that a lot. And so these are strips that are basically luteinizing hormone detectors. They're programmed with a certain level of hormone. So once you, if you hit the certain level of hormone in your urine, then the strip is going to turn positive. And we produce luteinizing hormone as we approach ovulation. So what happens is our estrogen rises to a certain point, like kind of like if you think about like the thermostat in your house that kind of tells the furnace to go on. So once the estrogen reaches a certain level, as we approach ovulation and the estrogen, we're making it because those follicles are like, as the follicles developing, it's kicking out estrogen. So it's all like a little symphony. So estrogen rises, it reaches a certain point, and then it sends this feedback message. And then, you know, our pituitary releases this luteinizing hormone. And the the greatest analogy for that that I've heard is if you think of your ovary or the follicle, the ovarian follicle as uh, like a balloon and the LH is the pin. So the LH, we release that about 24 to 36 hours before ovulation. So when we're, you know, ideally we use these strips 
it's going to tell us that, you know, that the LH is going to like the thing is it'll go flashy or whatever. And then um, that tells us that we're going to ovulate most likely in 24 to 36 hours. But there's, it doesn't always work like that. So for example, um, if you're doing midday urine, you've had a lot of water, you could have a false negative. You could actually, you know, maybe the, the LH isn't high enough or there's some situations where women actually frequently have elevated LH. So in the case of PCOS, it's characterized by elevated LH. So some women will actually show a positive multiple times when it's not necessarily related to ovulation. And another scenario that can happen is you could show that positive, but maybe something stressful happens and your ovulation is actually delayed for a bit. So the tech is helpful, but I think it needs to be put in context. And when we have that knowledge and we can marry it with the tech, then we have this really incredible opportunity to kind of get the best of both worlds. So everything you're talking right now, uh, talking about right now, is like so cool. The <laughs> I've been talking a lot about the body being this sacred thing. We have to like kind of, you know, take back the sacredness of our bodies because I don't think you know historically women have really been taught to look at our bodies as a sacred thing. So me saying that is kind of like blasphemy a little bit. But like, <laughs> these are built-in mechanisms that we all have. We are quite literally designed this way. And to Lisa's point, we've never been taught it. You know, I was talking ta- taught about parallelograms in school, but never about <laughs> my cycle. <laughs> like, not oh, those parallelograms. <laughs> not the most never helpful. used it after high school once. Never, never. I'm sorry to all the math teachers out there. We love you. Um, but you know, like I could have stood to to learn about my my menstrual cycle and like, you know, these fluids that were coming out of my body because I'm like, oh my God, I'm broken. What happened? <laughs> like somebody yeah. fix it. Um, nope, that's by design. And the other thing that you said is that stress can impact ovulation. So would you would you uh, be willing to expand upon that a little bit more? Sure. I mean, there's when you're tracking the menstrual cycle, I think there's kind of two broad ways that stress can impact. So you can have kind of like a chronic stress situation where it's not a situational thing. And that can cause kind of like a systematic reduction in overall hormone production. If you think about just a kind of situation that's your life is generally stressful or something's happening on a regular basis. Um, We can even think of stress outside of emotional stress and think about it like stress on your body. So for example, if you were chronically under eating or if you were chronically like, you know, working out a lot or like I'm giving that as an example a couple of times, or even if you had some sort of underlying infection in the body. So that's something that is stressful, but it's not emotionally stressful that can have a, a similar effect on hormones. And then we can also look at acute stress, and that's like the thing that happens. That's the the traffic issue, or the the travel, um, or the the family thing, or whatever it is. And and depending on where you are in your cycle, it could have a different impact. So if you are approaching ovulation and you experience a stressful event, that like an acute issue, then it has the potential to delay your ovulation. And so you could show signs that you're approaching ovulation, like you know, see that cervical mucus flowing, and etc think that you're ovulating or think that you're going to ovulate. And then that stressful event can take place and your ovulation can be delayed for a couple of days or something like that. Um, and so that's something to be aware of when you're trying to conceive, because sometimes if, if that's what's going on, you could miss that window. And similarly, if a, the acute stressor happens after ovulation, then what can happen is it might, it, it can have a negative effect on your you know progesterone levels. And in order to have a healthy luteal phase, so the period of time between ovulation and your next period, um, you know, and that period of time should be about 12 to 14 days, generally in a healthy cycle. So if you have that acute stressor during that phase of the cycle, you know, it can have an effect of reducing progesterone, maybe shortening that luteal phase, so it's not quite long enough, or you could see some signs of low progesterone, you know, an increase in PMS symptoms or some spotting before your period starts, things like that. So you know, stress can impact your cycle in different ways in your hormones, and it can be uh, have a slightly different impact depending on when it's happening in the cycle. That's helpful. Um, and I, I'm just, you know, you had started this by talking about how um, we need to look at our menstruation and our cycle as like an overall byproduct of our health. And so when it comes to fertility, it's not always as simple as be like, oh, just take this supplement or you just need to eat more of this one food. You just need more Brazil nuts. And then, you know what I mean? It's really like 
all of these factors play. And I know that can be so frustrating, especially for uh, people who are on their fertility journey, but it really is true. We don't, we do not specialize in infertility. However, we've seen a lot of women and helped a lot of women get pregnant really by focusing on the, like the health house foundations, eating enough, fueling your body appropriately, looking at the different stressors, whether those are physical stressors or more emotional mental stressors, the body perceives it all as the same. Um, And so these are, these are all things that we, you know, that we need to think about. I know that before we get, I know you're sperm obsessed, so I promise we will let you talk about sperm. But um, one question that we get often is about, and I'm sure you do too, is about hormonal contraceptives and birth control. So obviously you're a huge fan of using fertility awareness (laughs) as birth control since you've been doing it since you were a teenager, but I would love for you to speak into um, hormonal contraceptives and whether or not they have the, uh, the ability to impact fertility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's such a good question. And I mean, the conversation about hormonal contraceptives, I think when you're thinking about whether you're thinking about trying to conceive now, you know, or if you're trying thinking about trying to conceive in the near future, one of the things that we're encouraging you to do is to start thinking about how you're going to go about it. Because I think that as women, we make certain decisions for ourselves often in our late teens, or, um, you know, we go on certain medications for different reasons. But then as our life progresses, we sometimes don't reevaluate those choices. And we don't necessarily have the information to guide us on how they could affect us at all. Uh, So, you know, when you're looking at how hormonal contraceptives affect fertility, there's different ways you can approach it. So when we're looking at the research, you can look at what happens to the menstrual cycle parameters in general when a person comes off contraceptives, like how long do they take to normalize? You can also look at how long it takes a person to to get pregnant. And so what's interesting, you know, there was a study that it examined over 200 women who had been on hormonal contraceptives. And so they just recently come off of it compared to about 200 women who had never taken hormonal contraceptives. And so when you compared the two groups, the group who came off, it took an average of about nine to 12 cycles before all of those parameters had normalized to the point that if you were looking at the information for both groups, they would be indistinguishable. And so during those first few months off of contraceptives, you know, the most common things we were seeing were the the overall length of the cycle being extended. So delayed ovulation, uh, short luteal phase, abnormal cervical mucus patterns and things like that. So that's something to be aware of. It doesn't mean that when you come off the pill, it, you can't get pregnant. Because I think we all know that some women come off the pill and they get pregnant right away. Some women even get pregnant on the pill. <laughs> um, but what we do know is that, especially with long-term use, and interestingly in the research, long-term use is defined as two or more years. Oh, wow. So long-term, yeah, it's 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 wild because, you know, your average woman today maybe has taken it for five years or 10 years or 15 years. And so, you know, the longer that you're um, that you're on it, I mean, again, if you meet that definition of long-term, which like the researchers say is two years or more, then what we know is that there is this temporary period of subfertility. Um, when we look at the time to pregnancy studies, so it's interesting because a lot of the time to pregnancy studies will say, there's no problem, everything's great. But there's a couple things to know about when you're looking at them. So the first thing is that any woman who had any type of menstrual cycle issue prior to going on the pill, they're excluded from the study. So if you had somebody who had like irregular cycles or like kind of a big problem, they they don't even include the, those women in the studies. So first and foremost, um, another interesting piece of when you're kind of diving into the weeds with these studies is that they're often just looking at the 12 month mark. And so they're saying like, you know, who conceived after 12 months? Well, X percent of these women who like didn't have any cycle problems conceived after 12 months, but they're not always breaking it down month to month. So there was a really interesting study that they compared women who had used condoms, so non-hormonal methods, and then they started to try versus the combined oral contraceptive pill, the hormonal IUD, um, the shot, the implant, so a variety of different uh, hormonal contraceptive methods. What they found was that the women who were using the combined oral contraceptive, so the pill, the most common, um, it took them an average of twice as long. So the women who had stopped using condoms, they conceived in an average of four months. And the women who came off the pill, it was an average of eight months. Uh, 
And so, you know, when we only look at the like cumulative 12 month (laughs) conception rates, we're really missing out on what's going on after, you know, many, many years of being told that you could conceive at any time to the point that most of us are absolutely terrified in our 20s. We definitely come off the pill thinking we're going to get pregnant. (laughs) Mm. And so when it doesn't happen in month one, month two, like we're already freaking out. And by month three and four. So a lot of women are already, you know, in the midst of some sort of fertility consultation and or treatment by the time they're at month six or seven or eight. And this information, knowing that there is this temporary period of subfertility, knowing that it can take longer, knowing that um, all of that information would equip us better. So this is like a long way of saying that our recommendation then for women who are using hormonal contraceptives is to really start to think about like planning ahead. So if you have the ability to plan ahead, you know, if you never really had any significant cycle issues, like you went on the pill for birth control, you can't remember that your cycle was kind of weird or any of that kind of stuff, then we're recommending a minimum of six to 12 months. So come off ahead of time when you still need birth control. So have a backup plan and take that time to let your body come off of that and your hormones to normalize while you're also nourishing yourself. So those two things together. But if you had a history of cycle issues or you were one of those women who like you didn't know when your next period was coming or you had like extreme pain to the point that you needed to be put on something all the time, those could be signs of an underlying issue. And the pill simply masks those issues. It doesn't fix them. So then what happens is it puts you in a category where you're more likely to experience maybe a delay in the return of your ovulation. And you wouldn't really know that until you come off. So if you fall into that category, we suggest, you know, 18 months to two years, which sounds crazy, right? Like it sounds like, wow, this is just such a long time. But uh, I mean, I have car insurance and I don't want or expect to have an accident. And so our advice is simply to we don't want or expect you to have any challenges with fertility. But if you fall into one of those risk categories, doesn't it just make sense to Give yourself more time if you have the ability. Yeah. And it's like setting the expectations too can be so helpful so a woman doesn't spiral into shame, self-flagellation, what's wrong with me, something's really wrong here. It's like it sets the framework of like, okay, this might take up to two years and that is still within the threshold of normal. So I think it just takes a lot of the pressure off too. I also really appreciate and love what you said about uh, reevaluating choices because I know, you know, from experience and talking to so many women, there can be a lot of um, like blame or self-criticism or guilt or shame about being on birth control. Like I didn't know back then, or and it's like you're you were a different person back then. You had different knowledge, you had different data, you had different choices, you had different um what's the word I'm looking for? Things that we want, goals. Well, we can never go back in time. Look, this is something I, you can imagine. This is something I, I hear a lot because most women don't discover fertility awareness when they're 18, right? Like it's right. just not a thing. And so we all do the best that we can with what we know. And we can only really make those different choices when we have more information. And that's a huge part of, of having the conversations like what we're doing now to just kind of put that information out there. And, you know, in the book, I go so far, and in general, I go so far as to say that when you start approaching the age of 30, you should start to think about your birth control choices. I actually think that if you want to have, and this might be, I don't know if it's, you tell me it's controversial, but I think that if you are, you know, at some point in your life, you're thinking, I I think I might want kids. I think that when you get to those late 20s, you should actually start to think, is this still the right choice for me? Because the hard part is when we're in our 30s or our mid 30s, you don't have two years to like get, you know what I mean? Like for your body to Mm. restore. So this is something like, but your body might need it. So this is something that we want to start thinking about. I would encourage, and it's not, I'm not trying to bash the pill. I'm not trying to say it's bad. I'm not, you know, like I'm trying to just be honest about the fact that there, there are these effects that, and your body sometimes needs time. And we know the pill depletes a whole slew of nutrients, the specific ones we need to build babies like folate and B12 and, um, you know, selenium and and all of these important nutrients, zinc that we need uh, for optimal fertility. So I think it's worthwhile to have this conversation and to really start thinking about as I get a little bit older, you know, should I be looking at maybe non-hormonal methods? Like, should I be looking at something else? Is this still serving me? Because no one tells us to do that. They only tell us that you can get pregnant every day of your cycle. There's no safe days and da-da-da-da-da. But they don't tell us how our fertility changes with age. 
and how um, this can have an effect on our ability to build our families as we get older. At the end of the day, it's just information. And then you get exactly. to choose what to do with that information. You get to make the choice that aligns with your needs in any given moment. Uh, but if we don't have the information, we don't have that choice available to us. This episode is brought to you by our show sponsor, Organifi. If you're interested in hormonal health, I suggest you check out their Harmony Blend. It was specifically designed for PMS support to help balance out female hormones and to give you a little energy boost with the adaptogenic herbs that they use like Shatavari and Maca. So it's a cacao and Maca blend. I happen to love those two flavors together. So tasty. Uh, We also have ginger and turmeric added to the mix. So it's kind of like a spicy treat. Chase tree berries also featured, which is an herb that has been long shown to support female hormones. So I highly recommend that product. It's really tasty, great for post-meal sweet treats. You mix a little bit with either hot water. I personally like it with non-dairy milk. And uh, if you're somebody who has a sweet tooth, check them out. Head to Organifi.com forward slash funk. So that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash funk or use code funk to save you 20% on any of your orders. Get ready to conquer your to-do list with Ned's Brain Blend. You know I love me some brain help. This powerful USDA certified organic tincture blends equal parts CBD and CBG with brain-boosting botanicals and medicinal mushrooms, providing functional support for improved clarity, focus, and mental performance now and further down the road. Ingredients include MCT oil, full-spectrum hemp, ginkgo, goju cola, bacopa, Siberian ginseng, lion's mane, and lemon. Become the best version of yourself and get 15% off Ned's products with code FUNK. Go to helloned.com forward slash FUNK or enter code FUNK at checkout. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash F-U-N-K to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. Let's switch gears to talk about the male counterpart. Um, I do not know a whole lot about sperm. So I know that there's sperm guidelines and I would love for you to talk about, you know, is that, is that legit? Are those current sperm guidelines like really optimal for conception or what do we need to know about the male counterpart? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's just such an interesting and important topic because, and the reason that I am so, you know, obsessed about it, as you said, <laughs> um, which is true, is that <laughs> I've, I can't tell you how many conception clients I've worked with over the years who have been trying to conceive for a while. And a while typically means a year or more. And they're told that their partner's uh, sperm is fine, which is my not oh. favorite word. Fine. Everything's fine. Everything's yeah. fine. And I've even had clients who haven't, you know, they've been trying for quite some time and they go to ask for, you know, a sperm analysis and they're kind of told like, he doesn't need it. Like, even though they didn't test it. Oh my God. Um, yeah. So, the, so it's a problem is what I'm saying. It's, it's a big problem. Hurt. And it, and essentially it's something that needs further investigation, I think, in most couples. So from a statistical standpoint, if you have a couple who's been trying to conceive for, you know, a year or a year to two years or more, statistically, um, it's, it's far less likely that a sperm is optimal. So when we look at studies that are specifically testing the sperm parameters of men who, you know, have been trying with their partners for a year or two or more, statistically, their parameters are poorer than the the parameters of men who do conceive within a a year. So that's the first thing. Um, A lot of people have heard that kind of the musings, the stats that, you know, the sperm counts are declining. A lot of us have heard that. Mm-hmm. And it's really severe when you look at the research. So the average man um, from, taken from a 1940s study, uh, you know, had a sperm concentration of about 113 sperm per uh, milliliter. And the average man today has somewhere around 50 million, five zero sperm per Whoa. milliliter. And so that's anywhere from a 60 to 70% decline over the last... 60, 70 years. And that's huge. And if it continues in this downward trajectory, like where are we going to be? And so in in the book, in the the sperm chapter, 
we've got a couple of tables. And so one of the tables, the current guidelines come from the World Health Organization. They released a document in 2010. And in that document, they're detailing what would be kind of the minimum amount. So this is generally used on all the semen analysis. So if your partner is above this number, then you're, you're, he's told that that he's fine. And so interestingly, then the sperm concentration outlined in the 2010 document is 15.15. So if your partner, so again, average amount in the 1940s, 100, over 100, almost 100 and like almost 10 times, 100, and let's say 115, but 113 um, million sperm per milliliter. So if your partner's sperm concentration is over 1515, he's told that it's good. Motility, 40%. Motility, 40% or higher. So motility means the sperm is moving. So does that mean 60% aren't? And then 4% normal morphology. So normal morphology means if you picture a sperm in your mind, you picture like a circle and a tail, you know, like a, a sperm. But what the abnormal morphology sperm, they might have like a mashed head or like a, you know, squashed head or, you know, missing head or, you know, two heads or whatever. So visually not appealing. And, and when, so if you meet the guidelines, four out of every hundred are normal and 96 out of every hundred are like not okay. And so interestingly, when I'm working with clients, um, I share some some shots, some screenshots from this document of what the abnormal sperm look like. And often when I'm presenting that information, it really clicks like, oh, my gosh, you know, like even though he was told he was fine, like this, this like we kind of intuitively are like, this is not fine. Um, another interesting fact about the guidelines is that they've changed multiple times. So, um, you know, we're on, I think, the fifth edition. And so they've gotten like lower, they've, like, they've lowered those parameters. So I think the important takeaway is that the guidelines are not intended to, to tell us what is optimal for natural conception. The guidelines are providing this kind of baseline where if you were lower than that, it might even be difficult to do artificial reproductive technology. Oh, wow. Um, and to go further into the weeds about how they came to this number, I, I found it really interesting. So I found the paper where this information came from. And so they took over 2,000 men um, and couples, so, you know, men and, but the couples. And, you know, they looked at how many of these couples conceived within one year. So then they kind of segmented all of the couples who conceived within one year. And then they measured the sperm parameters of the men. And so these guidelines come from the lower fifth percentile of all the men. So in the study, 95% of the men had better sperm than the one, like than the, the number that we chose. So, you know, I think they do that. I think that when so they're wait, looking let me, at- just, let, me, let me pause and interrupt. So of the couples that conceived within one year- these men had like the like method man super sperm. Like they had like the more sperm than what we are that what what the current guidelines said says are good, right? Like well, they so, had a higher. So like basically, um, to try to explain it, like so out of it was almost two thousand men. Okay. Um, and all of these men had successfully, like their 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 partners had successfully conceived after one year of trying. Got it. So we are looking at the fertile pool overall. Got it. Okay. Within the fertile pool, they divide. Oops, they div <laughs> they divided it into centiles. So back to math class, right? <laughs> oh my and god! Our math teachers are now rejoicing. They're so happy. <laughs> and <laughs> and so we looked at the lower fifth percent. So the like that's where the number comes from. The lower fifth percent of the men that successfully conceived in a year. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, I know that it's getting a little bit into the weeds, but I think it's like when I explain this to my clients, their minds are blown because they're like, wait a minute, like that doesn't seem like this would be the best number. And that's the point. The point is that the number that they use is not the number of, of what optimal would be. When we want to, there was a different study that actually measured um, at what point did lower parameters start to um decrease your chances of conception. So it's a different question. These researchers were asking a different question. And what they found was that they were able to create like a they were able to identify what would be optimal parameters. So the optimal parameters that the researchers described in this other study, um, they had a minimum sperm concentration of 48 million sperm per milliliter. They had a motility rate of 63 
um, percent as opposed to 40 percent. And then the morphology number that they identified was 12 percent. So what's interesting, so just to kind of repeat that, because I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers, so bear with me here. Um, yeah, for like, what, like people's like eyes are glazed over, people who like can't do numbers and yes. math. But we can but, summarize what all this means. Exactly. But we have also women who've been trying to conceive. And no one's ever explained this to them 100%. before. And that's why I think that even though it makes our eyes glaze over a little bit, like that's why we should hang out here for a minute. So basically you have like that the, the men who are considered optimal, it's quite different to what the kind of baseline typical guidelines are. And I would argue that in between is what we could call the subfertile range. We could call that the gray area. So there's a lot of men who are going for their, you know, tests, their sperm tests when they're having, um, they're, they're, they're having difficulty conceiving their partners and they're being told that they're fine. And that's the end of it. They're fine. But what we're highlighting here is this subfertile range that's not being discussed. This range that's like, you're not infertile, but you're not optimal. And no one's telling you, <laughs> they're just telling you you're great. And when we can identify that, it gives us the opportunity to do something. Because what I always say is that there's no man alive that's so, you know, healthy that he can't benefit from improving his diet or taking some targeted supplements like, a, you know, women are taking prenatal vitamins, like there's, he could take something. So this is the whole point. Like the whole point is that when you have a couple that's struggling, he's probably statistically not perfect. And we need to be looking at him too. You know, it's what you're saying is not dissimilar to like taking a functional approach to like traditional lab work. We're not exactly. waiting the until the disease has like taken hold. We want to catch you. Like if you're suboptimal, we want to take the, you know, do the things, take the steps to get you into optimal range. It's the same exact thing. Um, so with that said, I know I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I know that everybody wants to know this next question. What are some of the things that men can do to improve their sperm quality? Of course. I mean, I always think of this analogy, like there's certain things that make sperm worse. So it's like if you think of driving a car, it's like the brakes are on. And then there's other things that can make it better. And so they're like the foot's on the gas. So some of the, so knowing some of the things that can make it worse. So if your partner has a, a semen analysis and it's particularly low, what I found is that there's usually some things. There's usually a couple factors. So some of those factors could include, um, I think the, some of the biggest factors are like smoking tobacco and marijuana and especially being in Canada it's legal now um, it's getting a lot more common so there is a really significant um, association of cigarette smoking or weed smoking or even because some people would say well what about the, the edibles and things like that and there is some research that would indicate that it could be related to the THC at least in part um, the smoke doesn't help either so so that's a piece of it no one thinks alcohol is a health food so in general, some of those pieces are important. You could look at overall diet quality. So, you know, consumption of high, ref highly refined processed carbohydrates, um, having poor metabolic health, um, high blood pressure, all of those kinds of things are also related to poorer um, sperm quality. And although men don't go through menopause and men are fertile from puberty onward, there is a a relationship between a man's age and overall sperm parameters um, and, and sperm quality and even the level of uh, potential DNA damage. So those are a few things. That's not necessarily something you could control, but it is something to be aware of because as men get older, then it would mean that they would have to, similar to uh, as women, pay more attention and, and make a, a bigger effort, concerted effort to improve sperm parameters. So those are some of, I mean, there's there's a few other things I should highlight as well. Um, I think one that people are less familiar with, but are it's like a huge contributing factor, but a lot of people don't know, is men who use testosterone or steroids. Um, so testosterone, when you look at the research of men who are using testosterone, it has kind of a similar effect to birth control pills. Like it renders men sterile. And so, wow. and sometimes a man could have low testosterone and they go to a practitioner who gives them testosterone and like not necessarily making the connection that it like could be rendering him sterile. And the research is not the greatest on that because uh, for a percentage of men, when they come off the testosterone, it can take quite a while for their sperm production to restore. So there's, there's a lot of different factors that we should be aware of because you can just imagine that there are couples out there who wouldn't necessarily know that that would be playing a role 
And maybe he's not even getting a sperm test. So we don't even know what's going on there. So um, that is other medications as well. So I think if you find if, if your partner is on certain medications, you don't just go off medication, but to be aware that certain medications could contribute so that you can have that conversation with your practitioner. So those are some of the factors, I think some of the, the big ones. And then in terms of what you can do, so we go into just extensive detail in the book about the dietary choices that you can make. And so we're advocating for a real food diet that contains animal foods and plant foods and some of the foods that are associated with improved fertility for both men and women. Because the interesting thing is that it's very complementary. The things that are bad for his sperm are not good for our eggs. And similarly, the things that improve his sperm quality uh, tend to also improve our egg quality. So, you know, incorporating fish, uh, particularly those omega-3 fatty acids, are really essential for both egg and sperm quality, um, making sure that we're getting sufficient protein, making sure that we're incorporating some degree of animal fat because animal fat contains cholesterol. And although cholesterol is demonized, that is the backbone of all of our, uh, our um, steroid hormones. So, you know, in order to make testosterone, you know, that's the precursor. And similarly for uh, us as women, in order for us to make estrogen and progesterone and testosterone and even vitamin D, um, we need the cholesterol. So looking at um, those types of things, and for men in particular, the research shows that men who consume a greater degree of, you know, green leafy vegetables, uh, high antioxidant foods like the, the, the berries and especially citrus as well. Um, but men who consume a high amount of vegetables that are heavily laden with pesticides don't don't fare better. So there's a lot of interesting kind of nuances in there. And I have to shout out to organ meats. So I like to do a shout out to liver <laughs> and organ meats uh, because they are just packed with nutrition. And interestingly, um, just to go on a, a little tangent, because this was a really interesting study that I found. You know, I, I pulled up the study and in the abstract, it, it basically talked about, you know, eating fish and kind of the Mediterranean diet. And it's like, you know, these things were found to be associated with improved sperm parameters. And then I open up the full text study and I'm reading and I noticed that they actually also had the men like they were measuring uh, the parameters of men who had also been consuming organ meats. And they found that the men who consumed organ meats had a significant improvement in their sperm parameters. And they just didn't mention it in the abstract at all. <laughs> Because it kind of goes against like their probably yeah. you know preconceived notions and biases, right. so <laughs> it's just the whole thing. Um, so I mean, there's a number of reasons for that. I think not the least of which is liver is one of our main sources of vitamin A preformed vitamin A retinol, which is essential for both male and female reproduction. To the point that there are actually research studies out there looking at the possibility of of interfering with a man's ability to process retinol as a potential contraceptive. So it's that important. Wow. For pretty so when they do animal studies it's like when they take away the entirely take away the vitamin A like the rats stop making testosterone type of thing. So it's really uh, essential. So I think that's not the whole reason. It's also really nutrient dense, folate, zinc, you know, all the B vitamins, all the things. Um, but so I, I could continue, but I'll just stop it there. I mean, I think that the good news is that there's a lot of things. And then in addition to the diet piece of it, I'll just mention that we also talk in depth about some of the supplements that have been found to really support sperm quality, things like coenzyme Q10, things like L-carnitine. And a lot of these supplements are, you know, they have antioxidant properties uh, that really reduce the the level of DNA damage. Because when we're thinking about making a, a human, there's a lot of DNA replication that needs to take place. But also, um, we're looking at supporting mitochondrial health, because mm -hmm. when it comes to sperm and egg quality, you know, it, it's a huge piece of our, the health of, of, of especially egg quality and sperm quality. It's, it's a huge piece of that to support mitochondrial health. Quickie follow-up cue, if somebody just like can't stomach liver or refuses to summer, stomach liver or organs, um, how do you feel about like freeze-dried supplements? Excellent question. I mean, we just live in such a great time where like right. a lot of my clients hate it. But the good news is you don't have to actually eat it if you don't want to because, yeah, supplement form, desiccated liver that come in pill form and things like that, it's the same. 
it's just in a different way. And the, the benefit is you don't actually have to consume it if you don't want to. Yeah, totally. Way more convenient, you know, going to pay more money for it, but but it's a way to get it in. Um, this was fascinating, super, super, super helpful, uh, packed with information. Um, as we said, if you want more specificity and more information, if, you know, if you or your partner or anybody you love is on a fertility journey right now, or you want to procreate in the future, this book is going to be a resource for you. So thank you so much for writing it, for spending three years working on it. Um, and it comes out it's, it's out now. As yes. as soon as this is released, it will be out. So we'll make sure we link it up in the show notes so you can grab your copy. Thank you so much, Lisa. This is You, you have so much information. I am not surprised that your book is 500 pages. <laughs> we really well, appreciate you, you having – we really appreciate you being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. You asked great questions. And, and yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you got something from today's show, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.